Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Lane Davis, and today I'm talking with Dr. Catherine Carte about her new book, Religion and the American Revolution and Imperial History. It's released in June of 2021 by the University of North Carolina Press. Dr. Carte is Associate Professor of History at Southern Methodist University. And Dr. Carte, welcome to New Books in History. Thank you so much, and thank you for for doing this. Absolutely. So before we get into the book, uh, why don't we take just a minute uh, and tell our listeners a a little bit about yourself? Well, as as you just said, I teach history here at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. Um, I've been interested in religion and how it operates in the early modern era for a really long time. So that's where where most of my work has focused. Um, My last project was on religion and economic life. Um, And when I finished that project, I uh, decided that the political questions that were at the heart of the 18th century were were really drawing me. And so that's that's what brought me to religion in the American Revolution. Excellent. Well, let's uh, let's get into that then. Uh, Your book is a really deeply nuanced and, uh, and, and very compelling argument about how we should frame that. So in, in your introduction, you lay out what you call a um, deceptively erroneous narrative that every history teacher and professor hears from their students. That's a quote. Um, it's a narrative in which uh, English Puritans flee England to escape religious persecution and then, quote, some indefinite number of years later, they enshrine freedom of religion in the federal constitution. And, and as I said, your book is a very nuanced, detailed dismantling of that narrative in many ways. So what are the big arguments that you're really making in this book? Well, let me start with what's what's deceptive about that. I think um, the subject of religion in the American Revolution is something that's been really important to a lot of Americans really since the since the 1790s as a way to create a usable past, a way to say that Americans pull together, that you, that people in the U.S. pull together, and so by pulling on this narrative of, of New England history and saying that Americans are all united, um, it's it's possible to, to sort of create an essential Americanness that's also connected to a divine mission. Um, and, and that's a really powerful image for people to pull pull on for people to draw on at times of crisis. So when we think about um, the Civil War and certainly coming together after the Civil War or um, the crises in the early 20th century, the idea that that Americans were united for liberty and united in a divine cause was really important. Um, so that's where that narrative comes from. But the challenge with it is that it's pretty ahistorical. Um, as, you, as you kind of draw on in that quote, the there's a there's you know 140 years between the founding of the um, of the Puritan colonies and the and the American Re- and the start of the American Revolution and even longer before um, the federal Constitution is written um, and so there's a lot of change that happens across that period and one of the things that historians have focused on a lot in the last few decades is just how much during the late colonial period um, uh, uh, British American colonists were invested in the British Empire. And that included their religious structures, the the communities they had, the ways that they thought of advancing religion in their worlds was really guided by the British Empire. And so um, the one of the key arguments of this book is that to understand what happened when the American Revolution interrupted that system, we have to really understand that system. We have to see where those people were starting. And they were starting more as, as subjects of, of a Protestant empire than they were as kind of 
proto-nationalist Americans. They had far more in common with their um, British counterparts overseas that they felt um, connected to in terms of their religious persuasions than they had in common with, for instance, um, Protestants and other colonies who they didn't necessarily, they may have agreed with them, but they didn't necessarily communicate with them as much. Um, And then the other big argument is that if we understand how this how this trajectory follows through the American Revolution, we can kind of understand a little better why we have such conflicts over um, the the sort of mixed heritage of people who advocate for a Christian nation in the United States mm-hmm. and people who ad- advocate for religious freedom. Interesting. So you frame your history as imperial. So instead of, say, nationalist or or transatlantic, or maybe it's not merely transatlantic. So why is the imperial framework an important distinction here? That's a great question. And um, the reason that that became so important as part of this book was that I started by looking for Protestant community and actually even international Protestant community. It wasn't originally limited to the to the British Empire. And what I found through the course of my research was that state structures were just incredibly important and that the places where um, religious leaders intervened in public affairs and the ways that they helped their congregants understand um, the world sort of immediately around them were really guided by politics. And that Mm. that was that that kind of overrode other kinds of kind of vaguer Protestant identities. You know, if we talk about Protestants as like the people of the book or whatever, and then you Mm. then you would assume that you would be pulling in Scandinavian Protestants and German Protestants and all, and you know, Dutch. That's not really what was going on. These political structures were essential. So rather than having a kind of level transatlantic playing field where we'd say sort of all of these actors are equally involved, I wanted that hierarchy to be really clear. This is a this is a system that's governed by imperial leaders and by people who have power and influence both in state structures and in religious structures. Hmm. Now, you use a really interesting metaphor to talk about that. You you talk about religious scaffolding to describe this imperial Protestantism. Um, talk about that metaphor, kind of how does it work? And I'm always curious how people come up with their metaphor. So, so how did you sort of come up with this idea? <laughs> oh, that was a long, hard fought metaphor. <laughs> sure. I, I, uh, I, I heard actually early in my in my graduate training, I heard a, a senior scholar talk just wonderfully about how the overarching structure of her book had come together at the last minute, and that I held on to that with the hope that something would work for me. And I think in the end, I had sort of a similar experience. Um, but the so I talk about scaffolding, um, and the reason is that I really wanted to emphasize. Um, how much the different parts of the British Empire were working together and yet were also dependent on that state structure. Mm. Um, so the um, in order to see how all of these different pieces were moving together and kind of get past an idea that historians have really embraced, which is that um, there was a lot of tension and diversity and over-religion in the, uh, in the British North American colonies, I needed to show how they actually had a lot in common. So um, the scaffolding, the metaphor there um, breaks down into two separate parts. I talk about the different establishments, the different systems of church and state relationship in, in each one of the British 
colonies and also in England and Wales and Scotland um, and to a somewhat lesser extent Ireland, that all of these places has, each one has a, has a religious establishment and they kind of move in parallel. So they're the pillars of the, of the scaffolding because they, they kind of look alike, but with slight differences. Mm. And then um, the, the planks of the scaffolding are the, the networks and communities that attach all of the different religious groups to one another so that they can work together. So a, 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 a Connecticut um, Congregationalist Presbyterian type, you know, in their sort of mixed establishment is, um, is, co- is co- uh, communicating with other people like him in, in England, in maybe in Virginia. And those are, those are the planks that kind of hold them all together. Hmm. So, well, it, it is a really good metaphor. I think it really gives, it gave me a really good picture anyway of, of sort of how these things fit together. So I guess for, for our listeners who maybe are not quite as familiar with, with the religious dynamic of, of 18th century British empire, who exactly are these major religious players at the time? The, the, the planks, if you will, uh, the, the groups and the people that, that you focus on here, who, who are the ones that, that you especially highlight that, that we should take note of? Well, we can answer that question in a couple different ways, and I think this is why it can sometimes be a little bit confusing. Mm. On the one hand, the the major denominational groups are a lot like the ones that we're used to hearing about within Protestantism today. So um, the Anglicans, who are now what we would call the Church of England or Episcopalians, mm-hmm. um, and then and they're the largest they're the largest community in the in the British Empire. And then we have um, uh, other groups, uh, Congregationalists, um, Baptists, Presbyterians. Um, so we have those denominational groups. But um, the other thing that's really important is that the British Empire had had developed through the Glorious Revolution this really distinctive system. So when when England and Scotland come together, and when um, William and Mary sort of create the settlement in the Glorious Revolution, what they did was create a biconfessional state. And what that means is that. William was the head of the Church of England in England, but he was also the protector of the Church of Scotland, which was Presbyterian. And Mm -hmm. so by embracing the idea that a single government or a single polity, if you will, could have two different established churches, they created this terrain of sort of officially legitimate Protestantism. And then they added other groups to that that were tolerated. Hmm. So there's all these, you know, we think about the denominational names, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Anglicans, all of that. But what's what really what I was looking at were those groups that had kind of official acceptance across the British Empire. And one way to think of that is people who could move around the British Empire without fear of religious persecution. And that's actually a pretty long list. Hmm. So people who were part of the state church in New England, who are Congregationalists, um, they're able to go and work in in London or in Scotland or in Virginia without any fear that they're going to be persecuted. Um, They're not considered schismatic. They're not considered as dividing the church. Um, They're accepted. They're legitimate. And so I was looking at this group of kind of legitimate Protestants across the the empire. Mm -hmm. So I know that for for many who you know have a basic history, a basic historical understanding of the American Revolution and the the contextual era of that time, that many times that era kind of gets framed as as the age of revolutions, lots of change, lots of things going on. But you argue in your second chapter that the story of American Protestants in the decades leading up to the American Revolution is really a story of continuity. 
that events like the Stamp Act or um, the Bishop controversy that you spent some time on in the book, that really that shows how imperial Protestants um, were rejecting controversy and conflict, and they remained actually very committed to a British imperialism. So I would say, let's take one of those controversies, uh, maybe the Stamp Act. I think people are are generally quite familiar with that. Explain how that story supports your, your main argument about continuity during this time. Well, that's a that's a great question too. So the Stamp Act, um, we do think of that as you know, in Edmund Morgan's famous famous phrase, the prologue to revolution. Right? Mm, it's the right. it's the time when we get great phrases like no taxation without representation, and we we start to see some of the arguments that will be core to um, the American independence movement really getting articulated. Um, and it's also when the British start to realize, first of all, that they are losing control over some of the colonies. And then secondly, that uh, when they back down, <laughs> that uh, it's going to be very hard to assert that control when they, right. they realize that when they repeal the Stamp Act. Well, so um, it's it, there's been a, a tendency to look at that event and see moments where religious rhetoric or um, or religious leaders speak out and see those as as times that as as. Americans calling on their faith to support that that movement. But what I did, what I was really curious about was where and when did religious leaders speak out and where and when was that less frequent? And what I found was that religious leaders spoke out in favor of the of the protest movement when they were confident that they had um, both the political structures in their colonies and the populations in their colonies behind them. Mm. But they tended overall to be very conservative. Um, They did not, as a rule, frame the Stamp Act as itself an anti-religious act, for instance, Mm -hmm. um, which they could have done, right? They could have framed it in other language and said that this was a violation of something that was essential to them, but they didn't. Um, And instead, what happens is that you get the most vigorous statements about the Stamp Act from religious leaders, actually when it's repealed. Hmm. And when it's repealed, there are a lot of days of Thanksgiving around the colonies and religious leaders who are then in the public pulpit, which is a really important institution where they're speaking on behalf of the public and the state, they're in the public pulpit saying, this is a triumph of Protestant liberty in the British Empire, which protects us, right? Hmm, so really. they kind of, they can, sometimes they get in digs in there and say, you know, you were really threatening our liberties here, right? <laughs> but it's after the fact, and it's often framed in a context of loyalty to the king, loyalty to the empire, gratitude um, to the political forces that um, that brought the change. So, um so it's it's a it's a conservative role, and I think that's true throughout the 1760s. There are a series of of um, controversies, as you mentioned, where uh, religious leaders, uh, you know, they they kind of they don't push too hard, and as a result, and also I should say, political leaders are completely intransigent on on making changes to religious institutions in this period. Mm. So even when there are voices that want to strengthen uh, certain kinds of religious structures in the empire, the political leaders in London are completely against that. And religious leaders defer. They allow their institutions to sit to the side. 
Um, so when you think about it, the the if we think about groups like the Sons of Liberty, which become so important, these are new extra legal structures that are coming in to further the um, the revolutionary movement. Those traditional structures of Protestant institutions, which were transatlantic, which were very capable of being repurposed, were not repurposed. Mm. Um, so they're they're pretty consistent across the course of the 1760s and early 1770s. Hmm. Really interesting. Now, you focus on two important years leading up to the American Revolution, 1773 and 1774, as years when the British Empire was, uh, you say, quote, stumbling towards war. And there was a, a chain of events that I think most Americans, again, who have had basic U.S. history would recognize, the Stamp Act, the Boston Massacre, and then going into 1773, the Boston Tea Party. And you say, this is a quote, in that chain of events, religious leaders were primarily reactive rather than guiding public sentiment, as has often been assumed, they worked within the structural imperatives created by Britain's mixed establishment, end quote, and that that establishment um, guided and sometimes restricted their options. So I guess talk about those years, uh, 1773 and 74, and especially the religious reaction to the Boston Tea Party, which you say was, just like the Stamp Act, essentially conservative. Yes. And, you know, there's like all things, there's a little bit of nuance there. There there were people after the Boston Tea Party who were very vigorous in their in their support for American protests. But the overall immediate reaction was one of caution. And we have to remember that what the American uh, with the Sons of Liberty, the small group of agitators in Boston um, did with the with the Boston Tea Party was a pretty massive destruction of property. Mm. And in general, religious leaders are against things like destruction of property. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it's, it's, you know, theft, things like that. So, um, and it had come at a moment, um, the Boston Tea Party comes at a moment when the general trajectory in the early 1770s had been towards a little bit more collaboration. Religious leaders had found some common language to sort of back off from um, some of the disagreements that they'd had across the Atlantic. And so they're a little bit cautious um, immediately after the after the Boston Tea Party. And, and what they really hope is that sort of cooler heads will prevail. Mm. But the key fact is that for the for the um, North administration in in uh, London, that's just not possible. The the destruction of the tea and everything that it symbolizes, the refusal of the people of, of Boston to kind of turn over the uh, actors in that case was so distressing that um, Parliament felt it needed to assert its authority. And so it responds with these intense coercive acts. Um, and so that really kind of, you know, changes the tenor of events. The Boston Tea Party opens a, opens a Pandora's box that um, probably religious leaders would have preferred not to open. Right. Hmm. Uh, you know, one of the really interesting things too, that, that I found in your book was how the, the growing political groups in the colonies really struggled to figure out how, uh, both to fit religion into what they were doing as well as to use religion. One of the really interesting stories that you tell in chapter three is the story of the continental Congress attempting to determine if a prayer should be said at their meeting. And if so, who should say it? Can can you tell that story and how it really illustrates your broader argument? Well, you know, that is such a fantastic moment. And it's, you know, the prayer is given by a man, um, by a man by the name of uh, Jacob Duche. And and um, in the 19th century, this scene was put into stained glass and it was put into an etching first. And then now it's in stained glass. I think the window's still in Philadelphia. Um, so what happened was that uh, as the, you know, the Continental 
Congress, the first general Congress, they called it, when they come together, they are one of these really extra legal bodies, right? There's there's no official recognition from London um, or from many of the colonies themselves, which are still in royal control, of the legitimacy of this body. So they're, they're using religion to try to legitimate what they're doing. If they can show that religious leaders who represent stability and, and morality are behind them, then that's a very positive thing for them. And then also, I think they're kind of anxious about the situation they're in. And so, you know, I think there was a certain number of them who, who very legitimately thought that prayer was the right way to start this assembly. So they're both kind of following form. And I think it's a, it's a, a legitimate need. And um, we, we get this story most from John Adams, who reports that, um, uh, I forget who exactly, I think somebody from Connecticut first makes the motion um, that there should be a prayer. And uh, somebody else says, no, this is going to be too, we, we can't agree on this. Religion is too divisive because there's a lot of, a lot. there are a lot of religious divisions between different groups within the colonies. And uh, Sam Adams, who Samuel Adams, um, who's the um, sort of, we, we talk about him as the last crusty Puritan, right? He says he'll listen to any prayer as long as, um, as long as it's by a, you know, a pious patriot and to say, you know, some words like that. And, um, so they choose a, a minister from the church of England, um, Jacob Duche. Um, Duche was a moderate. He was also, he's a really kind of sweet guy. He's very, very, um, everybody seems to like him on a personal level. Um, he was a kind of a young guy and he also was cut, was from the awakening movement. Um, so he was, he was good at, uh, kind of extemporaneous preaching and they invite him in and, he comes in in his Anglican clothing, you know, so he's representing the authority of the Church of England in that moment. But he offers this very moving prayer using the the, the service that he was supposed to use for that day. Um, and then he gives an extemporaneous prayer that's very passionate. And so, and according to John Adams, everyone kind of, you know, is overwhelmed by this prayer. And so, you know, people who want to see moments of, of, um, great religious outpouring during the American Revolution. This is a great example because this is a time when a, a governing body really did seem to be moved by a prayer. Um, those move, those moments are actually really rare. <laughs> yeah, right. um, but that but it, it did happen at that at that particular moment. Huh. Interesting. Well, I want to come back to Duche in just a minute. I, I, I found him to be an interesting character in the book, but moving into 1775, um, conflict is is really growing and seemingly inevitable in the colonies. Uh, and, and you focus on the religious discourses of British Protestants in Europe. And by doing so, I, I think you tell a story that complicates the narratives of kind of inevitable revolution. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk about that side of the story and how especially some of the well-known Protestant figures. You, you mentioned John Wesley uh, and John Erskine specifically. How, how were they encouraging Protestants to avoid conflict during this time? Well, you know, I think the British side of this story is essential, um, not just because it hasn't been told as much, but because if we think about this this idea of imperial Protestantism as something that's holding the empire together, um, one of the things that's linking people together, it, its fracture has impacts on both sides of the Atlantic. So um, because they were invested in a notion of, of um, shared faith, um, going to war against the colonists was not necessarily considered the right choice. Um, the two two gentlemen you mentioned, John Wesley, of course, is the is eventually the founder of the Methodist movement, 
big leader in the awakening movement, he actually, uh, he thinks the colonists are missing the boat. He, um, he, he believes that these protests over taxation are misguided. Um, and he sees it really as a matter of civil policy. So when he discusses it and he writes, um, what he calls a calm address, uh, to our American colonists. Um, when he writes that he, he, pens the pamphlet that's actually one of the best propaganda devices for the um, for the North Ministry during the whole crisis. Hmm. Um, so he actually, he becomes sort of the spokesman um, for a brief time there for the North Ministry. And he's, he's uh, you know, arguing that this is the colonists' missteps, but he also doesn't use religious language for that. And that's important because it helps the Brits see this as something that is just policy. Right. We don't right. don't think of this in religious terms because that's going to be problematic because this mm-hmm. is going to be a war where Anglicans are killing Anglicans and, you know, Presbyterians are killing Presbyterians and all of that. Right. Um, and then but then you have figures like uh, John Erskine. He's a, a leader in the awakening movement in Scotland who um, he's more he's concerned about how this will distract from uh, the truer fight. And this is the older fight against Catholicism. Right. Um, that Protestants going to war against each other is, is going to undermine that longstanding, you know, purpose for the British Empire of being the bulwark against um, Catholic tyranny. Um, so both of them are kind of working to, to find a way to kind of avoid the war, um, but for very different reasons. Right, right. Well, of course, the war, war begins uh, anyway. You, you note that much of the way that that history uh, has been presented is often as an ideological struggle and, and that ideas have at least taken precedence often in how the conflict is, is remembered for a lot of the political investment that, that we, we've talked about. But, but you focus on the ways in which the war was especially disruptive, really devastating for, for those imperial networks of Anglican and dissenting Protestants. And, and you say that after the war, quote, the losses of the past era were visible, but the tools for rebuilding could not yet be found, end quote. Uh, and the dissenting Protestants seem to be an especially good example uh, of this, I think. Talk about the dissenting Protestants and, and how the effect of the war or, or what the effect of the war was on those networks. Well, so dissenters, you know, this is a it's a it's a kind of a challenging word uh, or term to use to use in historical writing. But you know, dissenters we often think of as people just sort of outside of the official church. Right. But um, in practice, in the in late colonial America, dissenters were members of a very specific religious community. So they were English Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and Baptists, and then New England and North American. Um, Presbyterians and Congregationalists and Baptists, you know, so those very specific groups, and then to mm-hmm. a lesser extent, Scottish Presbyterians. And the reasons that they had built a very strong collaborative relationship, um, so partly their shared relationship goes back to the days of Puritanism, because these, these groups are all descendants of the Puritan movement, but also because they had a very specific shared legal status in English law. And um, so their commonalities were kind of built through that structure of imperial Protestantism. And when the war disrupts that relationship, in particular, North American dissenters don't have as much need to hang together uh, because they don't have a shared enemy. The Church Mm -hmm. of England, the Anglican Church kind of collapses after the American Revolution in North America. And so um, they don't have that, that sort of opposite side um, to push them together. So um, they lose their connections across the Atlantic through the course of the war, but they also kind of lose their connections to each other through the course of the war. And we can really see that, for instance, in conflicts between um, 
uh, Congregationalists and Baptists in New England. Mm. Um, some of those had been longstanding fights over establishment. But for instance, Baptists get accused of being, you know, Tories, of being loyalists, of being on the wrong side. Congregationalists won't trust them. That kind of common feeling that the groups had had within imperial Protestantism kind of falls apart. So one of the interesting examples uh, again, was or for me was was the Anglican minister Jacob Duche. Uh, I think he sort of represents that breaking apart of some of these networks, uh, specifically through a letter that he sent to George Washington, asking him to end the war in 1777. Can you tell that story and just sort of how the the saga of Jacob Duche wraps up? You know, Jacob Duche is he is truly one of my favorite people in this in this. And you know, I have to say it's partly because his in his letters he has such a warmth and love for mm. people um, and trust in his in his fellow humans um, that it, it just kind of shines out of his letters. Um, so that also really kind of is demonstrated in his life. Um, he had been the chaplain to the Continental Congress um, on a couple occasions, and then he had been in Philadelphia when the British um, invaded Philadelphia, and uh, he was in prison for a couple days, and he really didn't like that very much. And um, he, he, he was only imprisoned for a couple days, which in the course of the war is not that not that severe, but sure. he, he seems to have taken it very hard. Mm. Um, and so uh, a little bit later, he and he knew Washington, um, kind of through Anglican connections, um, going a ways back. I think he also knew, uh, his nephew and things like that. So, um, he, uh, he felt he had a relationship with Washington. And so, um, at a kind of pivotal moment in the war, he, he writes a letter to Washington saying that independence was too far. Um, it was one thing to support the protests, but independence was too much that the British empire is, is, stronger. It's on the side of, of righteousness in the sense that it's the Protestant empire. And um, the Americans are going to lose. And so much pain and devastation is going to happen that, and Washington is the only person who can bring a stop to it mm. um, through his, his leadership. And so Duche asked Washington to end the war. Um, and Washington wants no part of this. He sees immediately that this Anglican minister saying this is politically disastrous. He hands the letter over to, to, um, to the newspapers and to Congress and Washington or uh, Duche is run out of town, um, and, and sent back to London. But even there, uh, people really kind of, uh, just kind of pity him. Um, mm. uh, I have to say that the coda to, to, uh, Duche's life. He does eventually, um, in the 1790s, he finds a way to get back to Philadelphia, which he always considered his home. His, uh, I think his grandfather had been mayor of Philadelphia. Um, he, his family had been there since the 1680s. Hmm. Uh, but he also becomes a Swedenborgian after the end oh. of the war and embraces the idea that there is um, a universal peace and a universal future outside of nations. Um, which I think is really important. He talks about revolution as something that's just destructive and that the fights between people are just destructive. Um, so I think he kind of washes his hands of, of all of that in the interesting, end. Interesting. Interesting. That is a very interesting story. That, that's what a few days in jail will do to you right there. <laughs> so yes. The closing chapters of your book uh, really begin to deal with the effects of the dissolution of the imperial Protestant scaffolding. And you note that um, in many places, the war had just really broken down the structures of religion and religious leadership. And so that this created a, an opening for new kinds of religious awakenings. And, and there was also the impact on the Church of England, which effect, effectively just disbanded and, and formed the Protestant Episcopal Church. So talk about the new American religious landscape that arose out of 
the disruptions of the war. And specifically, I think, which is the important part for, for me that came out of, out of the book, which is why the disruptions are key for understanding this new landscape. Yeah, thank you for that question. I think this is really one of the most important um, things about thinking about the American Revolution as an event that happens in time, and that it's right. it's that disruption disruption that really enables um, uh, what we think of as kind of the American style of religion, where we have lots of revivals and um, lots of different denominations. Um, that doesn't really happen until after the structures of imperial Protestantism are gone, um, and the reason for that is that in the colonial period before the war, the benefits of being within that structure were really powerful. So people like John Wesley um, and uh, George Whitfield, you know, leaders in the awakening movement, um, you know, uh, some of the Baptists who are part of the awakening movement, um, they tend to gravitate towards um, existing denominations and they want to bring about reform within those structures. After the revolution in North America, and then to a lesser extent in in Britain also, they're willing to to create new denominations because the benefits of of being within that old structure are gone. Um, So some of the new revivalists we get, people like Henry Alleyne in in, uh, Nova Scotia or Benjamin Randall in in New England or some of the African-American leaders that we get in the South, they found their own denominations, their own communities. They're recognized as religious leaders, um, but they don't have the benefits of state establishment. Um, They don't particularly need it either. Mm. Um, So there's there's a kind of opening up to the landscape there. And we start to see kind of that multiplicity of denominations that so characterizes the American landscape. Yeah. And and, and this this next question may kind of overlap some with with this with this last thing but the the war didn't just change relationships within Protestant networks but has also changed the way Protestants interacted with their governments um, both in America and Europe and because this history has a great deal of modern uh, political investment as you note in the book you know the, the discussions you say have have really focused around either emphasizing disestablishment in the U.S. so that a religious free market was created, or it's tended to emphasize that there was um, no true disestablishment in the early republic and that establishment really sort of effectively went on for, for several more decades. And you know, some may argue perhaps it, e- it is even still in place in some places today. Um, why, in your opinion, are these narratives, if not wrong, then just incomplete for how we should understand the negotiations of religion and government during these years? Well, I think we need to think about that, that moment after the revolution, when, when new state building is going on as one of, of real transition and complex transition. So uh, religious establishments had accomplished a lot of different things um, in both locally and, you know, kind of transatlantically during the colonial period and pulling them apart was pretty hard. Mm. Um, One of the things that the Imperial Protestant establishment had done had been to put these boundaries around legitimate Protestantism um, to say, okay, these groups are on the inside, but that thing over there that you're doing that, you know, crazy burning of the Bible and preaching, you know, equality of the races, clearly that's not legitimate uh, religion, right? So Mm. those those structures were in place that uh, allowed for amount of stability in the colonial period. But once you kind of 
open up the question, maybe we're going to have freedom of religion and we don't have an establishment, you kind of lose those, they've lost those guardrails. Um, And when they struggle to put those guardrails in place, that's when we start to see kind of the conflict between these two impulses. On the one hand, you want stability for the state. A lot of people believe you need, um, say, for instance, religious tests for office. But on the other hand, you really kind of don't know how to put it in place. Um, One of the things that I think is most interesting is that uh, there's a clause that had been really frequently employed, which is um, they say you can freedom of religion extended to those who could demean themselves peaceably. Um, It's in the Massachusetts 1780 Constitution, but it goes way back into the early 17th century. Um, The idea that religion was only safe, it was only acceptable as long as it didn't disrupt the state. Um, As people are more and more uncomfortable kind of figuring out what that means. They take those barriers out. Um, but there's still a lot of people who want some of that restriction there that see the, the conflicted heritage. So what I'm, what I really want to convey is that we, the, the, early Republic inherits both this strong impulse for a stabilizing religion, um, for the, the idea that you need to have, um, a Protestant leaders at the head of the state, right? Mm-hmm. That's what they'd inherited. That's what they'd had for a long time. And that religious right. leaders are somehow special. It's not like another job. And then you've got have people who say, there's no way to make that practical. That's priestcraft, right? That that's kind of a distorted, old-fashioned way to think about things. Um, those both come out of the American Revolution. Um, and they they kind of just clash. And as far as I can see, they're still clashing. Um, there, sure. are, yeah. there are elements of that that are deeply embedded in our national conversations. Absolutely. Which is one of the reasons I think your book is is so great, because there there is a lot of resonance for conversations that are happening on the front pages of newspapers. Um, today. So one of the things that I always like to ask historians about their books is what's the essential intervention that you think your book is making here? And to kind of put it in another way, what's the conversation that you hope people will have around this book? Oh, you know, there's so many. Um, uh, <laughs> I think I think at the end of the day, um, the, the central issue is about how um, relationships between church and state are kind of deep and complicated. Mm. Um, and that that was true in the colonial era. Um, and that was the British empire in that period. And that the disruption as large as the American revolution is a multi-staged complicated disruption to a very sort of complicated set of relationships. And so we need to kind of pull those things apart um, and, and look at it in a, in a broader sense. Um, Probably I could say that much more succinctly by saying that, (laughs) you know, the idea that, that imperial Protestantism really is the groundwork for religion in the American revolution. That's the, that's the more specific (laughs) intervention. Sure. Sure. Well, Dr. Carte, I really thank you for your time today and really appreciate the book. It really is a fascinating reframing of this subject of religion in the revolutionary period. And I really do think readers are going to come away with just a fresh perspective on these events after after reading it. Um, before we go, where can listeners find you or follow you uh, and, and learn more about your work? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter at uh, K-E-C-A-R-T-E. Um, I think that's probably the easiest way. Um, cool. And uh, other than that, you know, I, I guess just, um, you know, I'll, I 
we'll keep publishing, I guess. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Well, Dr. Catherine Carte is the, uh, her new book is Religion and the American Revolution and Imperial History. It releases in June of 2021 by the University of North Carolina Press. Dr. Carte, it's been a pleasure and congratulations on the book. Thank you. And thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you for listening to New Books in History. Make sure to subscribe to our channel wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening and enjoy your reading.